Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the last of our special week uh, looking at the history of women's rights. And once again, I'll explain that we had to do these shows because people are trying to take women's rights away. Zach, you saved arguably the best till last. Who have you got on today? We've got one of our favourites. We have many favourites, but I would say our guest today is right up there amongst the pedigree of our favourites. We've got A.E. Rooks back. Rooks Hi. did the stunning book, The Black Joke. We had an absolute riot um, tearing 19th century white men apart for their attitudes on race. Um, so that was a lot of fun. But Rooks' lectures in women's fight for control over their own bodies. So you can guess where we're going today. Um, Rooks, it's great to see you again. Let rip thoughts on this. Um, we've used many words, haven't we? Shithousery, clusterfuck. Fuckery. Fuckery. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a hot mess of epic proportions. So, I mean, <laughs> we've got to live with that. So that's something, I guess. Yeah. But we saw it coming. We, we've been asking all of our ladies before they start today, because um, we are we are going to look at the history of abortion um, and how women came to have that right in the first place in the US. But how did you feel when they overturned Roe v. Wade? You saw it coming. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, deeply unsurprised yet, you know, utterly pissed off is I think <laughs> what we're going to go with there. Um, when I was doing my library school program, we did a class on data storytelling. And uh, so you had for your final, you had to, you know, present a sort of data story with like a little presentation thing. And mine was on Griswold um, versus Connecticut. And everybody was like, but why? And I was like, because Roe is toast. And that was in 2020. Um, it was it was a matter of time. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you know, upset but ready to ready to keep fighting the good fight. But you've already been out protesting, haven't you? I have, I have in New Orleans where it was hotter than Jenny Thomas after the election results. It was <laughs> real toasty. Um, the the feels like temperature it was like seven o'clock at night, and the feels like temperature was still 105 because of the humidity uh fahrenheit sorry y'all i don't know how to do that in <laughs> um celsius sorry <laughs> but yeah so it's been it's been people are definitely active and i think there are a lot of as much as there's a lot of complaint about uh how prepared legislators may have been for this moment it's pretty obvious that activists and clinics and like lawyers and those kind of folks were prepared um for this moment to sort of hit the ground running so you talk about everyone being prepared um, just to kind of deal with the immediate history. Is this because oh, for those who've been, I don't know, living under a rock, this is a result of the Donald. This is Trump's shitty legacy come back to to bite everybody in the ass. So is this because as soon as um, Trump managed to kind of stuff Republican or Republican leaning judges into the Supreme Court, everyone was going, well, only one thing's going to happen and it's going to be this. 
kind of, kind of, yeah. Uh, even though uh, many of those justices said under oath that they believed that Roe was longstanding precedent. Whoopsie days. <laughs> but what Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Comey Barrett, was kind of the. I think the the nail in that proverbial coffin, even if folks had been thinking that maybe it would have been okay, um, because she is vociferously uh, anti-choice in such a way. Like, I mean, if I lived my life such that like 200 people I went to high school with wrote a letter about how I shouldn't get a job, I would rethink my life choices. But mm-hmm. obviously that's not how she feels. <laughs> I just, there are two people I'm just going to let it rip again because ding, ding, we've already had our first uh, reference to, uh, well, his wife, Clarence F. and Thomas, how a black man who grew up in the 60s can can do this and how a woman can do this. These two, for me, I want to I want to throat punch those two harder than all the others that went for this, basically. I'm happy to throat punch all of them equally. I won't lie. (laughs) Like, not for real secret service listening um but (laughs) for sure uh because it's one of those things where it's like if roberts didn't actually think that it was the right decision maybe he should have had the courage of his convictions kavanaugh shouldn't align and he shouldn't be a rapist thomas shouldn't also have been a sexual harasser and potential you know sexual assaulter and also amy coney barrett's a terrible person and neil gorsuch is okay with people freezing to death in the cabs of their trucks I just <laughs> like so like it's just it's a murderer's row of awful people. It is, and it's you know what Eleanor brought it up, didn't she? It's a murderous row of awful people who have these appointments for life. Correct. Seriously. Correct. Term limits would be real delicious right now. <laughs> Let's talk about how women had the right and how they got to have the right to choose mm-hmm. in America land of the free so the history of it and does it run parallel roughly to england uh yeah uh yeah no 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 in in some ways it does uh run parallel like in in its general lack of freedom in a lot of ways but um it's one of the most frustrating things i think about the alito opinion and sort of the, a lot of the uh, sort of anti-bodily autonomy talking points is this idea that the abortion has historically, traditionally always been illegal, which is completely untrue. It could not be further from the truth in England or in the United States, and that's be- or even with the Catholic Church. And that's because of the principle called quickening, which is uh, essentially fetal movement, for lack of a better, um, more specific way of describing it that won't take forever. <laughs> and so in many traditions up until about the 19th century, uh, quickening was when a fetus was considered viable, shall we say, or potentially a person or abortion was not legal. There's a lot of ways to get at that, particularly in the United States where, um, as today, laws were different state by state. Um, But it was generally legal. You could see ads for abortificants and people who provide abortion, abortionists, as they were called, um, in the newspaper. Um, People you could like send out for like, like, I would say pills, but it's not like herbs, you know, um, and you could get something in the mail that was supposed to help you abort a, um, a fetus. So it was a pretty regular, understood, common thing. And as just a brief aside to my personal favorite thing, um, in some ways, is that enslaved people also practice contraception, which a lot of people don't realize. Um there was uh like there's a really great article that I read. I want to say the last name of the article is of the author's parent, P-E-R-R-I-N. Anyway, um, and it was about what enslaved people used as contraception to prevent having kids and how they understood that as a labor strike as well as a sort of bodily autonomy and reproductive choice to not contribute further um, to the enslaved labor force purposefully. And some were quite successful. So um, there was definitely a robust history of abortion and birth control in the U.S. and abroad um, for many, many hundreds of years uh, before the 19th century. And then the Victorians happened. 
<laughs> take it away they're kind of like well they're in between your wheelhouse and my wheelhouse but take it away with the victorians uh. oh no um well so it technically does start before especially in england i believe it's 1806 uh y'all's first anti-abortion law which doesn't sort of fully conclude in making abortion fully illegal until i believe 1861 um but here uh, we had the Second Great Awakening, which is pre-Civil War for us, and it was a huge religious movement. Not actually, you'd think that more might have happened in that regard, but like I said, abortion and quickening were understood that way. It just wasn't understood as a person or a life, per se. Um, and then, unfortunately, those several things happened at once. <laughs> um, one, we have the assessment of birth rates, like birth rates become available to different countries. And then they get obsessed with like, if their birth rate is falling and if other European countries are doing better and blah, blah, blah. There's at one point, this is later, obviously, but Teddy Roosevelt, I think called women who didn't have enough kids race traders. <laughs> like, so we can see what that's already bound up in, which is the rise of scientific racism. And with that, um, eugenics, which is uh, coined as a term by Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's cousin, uh, or half cousin. Um, so Darwin didn't really go on with social Darwinism. So but Galton seemed fine with it. He also invented the dog whistle, which I find hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm like, oh, the ironies. Um, but yeah, so you have the rise of scientific racism, you have falling birth rates in some European countries and data about that becoming available. And you have the professionalization of the AMA in the United States, which is the American Medical Association, who though recently has come out and said that this is an, that the fall of Roe is an impact on human rights, blah, 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 blah. Um, originally were crucial were key in the battle to make abortion illegal state by state in the United States over the course of about 20 years between, say, 1860 and 1880. And by 1900, it was a felony everywhere, everywhere, no question. Um, So (laughs) when we just end up, we ended up in this sort of spot where it's legal, people are still getting abortions, right? Like that hasn't changed, but it's harder. Um, Of course, people who are in poverty are more impacted than people who are not, who can just travel to somewhere where they can get an abortion or to get a doctor who will sign off on an abortion because there were still some exceptions in some states for the life of the mother. Um, Although the, I believe there was a papal encyclical in 1895 that said that um, there were no exceptions to the life of the mother for Catholics. So that's when that happens. So that's like you can't even have an abortion if it's going to save your life. Right. Um, According to that sort of. And there's several there are a couple of states who are trying to do that here now. Um, Love of God. Yeah. (laughs) Although uh, Biden did send out, I guess he sent out a letter recently reminding all doctors that they were protected uh, federally for providing emergency and life-saving care. So uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, But unfortunately... Like a letter. I'm not being funny. Uh, Good. Nice. Yes. But a letter. Come Mm -hmm. on. We need Mm -hmm. legislation. Mm -hmm. I know. It's almost like everybody else in Congress kind of could have known this was coming to and prepared accordingly as opposed so to this is the thing isn't it for people who don't understand why biden can't just go pack this shit in and do as you're mm-hmm. told it's because to make sure that people couldn't dictate like that in america there are three branches of government there's the presidential which is him there's the mm-hmm. judicial which is those assholes and then mm-hmm. there's the legislative as well and none can overrule the other which means that congress and biden can sit there looking at the likes of clarence freaking thomas and go what are you doing but they can't stop them doing it can they oh no they can't they can't yeah, they can. Uh, can I just throw executive orders? Be, yeah, they're supposed Where to be. Where does that fit? Oh, executive orders are not the way to pr- 
completely prevent yeah. that. They do do something, but then the next the next president comes in and can do a totally different executive yeah. order. Right? Like for instance, the global gag rule, um, where it's like organizations that are funded by the United States talking about abortion has been on and then off and then on and then off, depending on who is president, because you can just change it with an executive order. However, Congress can make a law. Like if they don't agree with a Supreme Court choice, they could codify federal protection for abortion into law. And then that law would get challenged and it would go back before the Supreme Court, blah, 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 blah. But um, so it has happened in the past that SCOTUS, or sorry, so the Supreme Court, SCOTUS, um, has referred to a law as like, no, this is unconstitutional. You can't have this Congress. You made this law. This law is bunk. No. And Congress goes back and changes the law. And they rewrite it. And they're like, oh, but we can have this one now based on what you said. Right? Right? And the answer is usually, yeah. Um, so there is federally speaking, yeah, there's something that can be done about it. The problem is that while, um, the party that is is supportive of, uh, sort of more bodily autonomy rights, the Democrats, while they appear to have a majority in both houses, unfortunately, there are a couple of problematic senators that make what should be a 60 person majority, more like a 58 person majority, depending on the screwing with it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And this is a holdover from, I mean, honestly, getting into the Electoral College is like a whole different thing. But basically, part of the reason we have the Senate, a la, like, you know, Commons Lords for y'all, is to protect the the plebs from themselves, to summarize Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers. But the idea of being like, oh, no, like, the poor and ignorant people can't just be in charge of making all the decisions. So we need to have a way to sort of protect that. And so you combine that with um, basically the preservation of rights and power because states wanted equal representation in one body. So the small states were constantly getting voted, outvoted by the larger states because the population in the House of Commons, the number of representatives each state has is based on their actual population. At the time, three-fifths of their enslaved population. (laughs) Um, So since your apportionment of congressional representatives is based on how big you are in the House, in the Senate, it is straight up two people per state. That's it. So that way everybody sort of has an equal, if you will, um, say state-wise in federal governance. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the answer is, yeah, stuff could be done, but it's also not going to be done properly. <laughs> At least not this under is the radio. You can't sit as see us sitting here just shaking our heads. Yeah. Um, the disgust it, in our faces is, is strong right now. Yeah. I'm out yeah. of gin already. <laughs> like, but just That's because, a tragedy. Like, <laughs> because they outlawed it, like we've already said, it doesn't stop people getting abortions. It, it, it just stops people getting safe abortions. So what did people do um, after that, after it was banned? Where did they go? In the 19th century? Yeah. Um, so they, they continued to, they died. Right. Yeah. There, is a, there is a high spike in uh, deaths related to abortions and whatnot um, and abort and sort of complications thereof. Um, some, like I said, went out, uh, went to a different state in the United States because eventually some states would have liberalized their laws subsequently, New York being um, one. And um some, if they could afford it, some just went out of the country. In one particular case, um, I cannot remember her first name, but her last name is Finkbein, um, was a woman in Arizona in the 60s, I want to say, who had taken a medication that it turns out caused birth defects, which wasn't, um, I guess, fully known at the time. Because actually, fun fact, uh, part of the reason that we actually have labeling on all of our for ingredients and side effects and all that on pills in the United States is because of birth control because the pill had a lot of side effects, um, especially at the original dosages. And so it became a big thing to actually label that and sort of warn people about what might happen to their body. Annie Hoosel. Um, so Finkbein uh, finds out that she's, you know, she's taken this medication for a while. Obviously, it's going to cause a real problem with the pregnancy. And so she schedules an abortion. Um, but because she speaks out about the medication being problematic to try to sort of warn other people, the hospital in Arizona is like, we don't really want all that bad press. So never mind, no abortion for you. And so then she flies to Sweden, I believe. 
um, to get an abortion, which is not an option for most people. So, yeah, so people would just, they would do the best they could. Um, in one, in Chicago, there was Jane, which was an underground abortion network, um, which is pretty cool. What they would do is they um, had volunteers who'd gotten training from doctors usually, and they would provide a travel or the abortion itself potentially sometimes um, amongst themselves to people in need, uh, you know, without having to even necessarily get involved with the medical system. You just call a phone number and ask for Jane. And that was the, you know, the wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah. And try to get the process going there. But I mean, it was just, a, it was a hodgepodge hot mess is, is the answer. And um, so people didn't have a ton of options. Well, and there were people who had the baby and they, there was a book actually called The Girls Who Went Away about folks who were pregnant uh, pre-row and then sort of just got sent off for like, you know, <clears throat> nine months to a year <laughs> um, and then just returned baby free as if nothing had ever happened um, and how sort of psychologically damaging and whatnot that could be as a process as well. Yeah. So, yeah. What does the political movement to try and you know, fight for this actually look like? Is it one of those things where if you start to even talk about this, then people are tearing stripped off of you? Or is there this kind of centralised push to try and gradually overturn this? I mean, I don't have a lot of hope in asking that question because I'm thinking about the fight for civil rights and what a a hellstorm that was. Um, But I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the fight for civil rights, right? Because there's almost a, you can almost call it like an activism pipeline um, that is happening in the 1950s through, you know, 70s and 80s or whatever, um, mostly 70s, for folks who got involved in um, advocating and agitating in regards to civil rights, um, which was a, a multi-decade fight, right, in and of itself. Um, and through that, took those lessons um, and that activism and applied it to what has in the past been known as the second wave of feminism. But what I believe, well, scholars are doing it and I side with them, <laughs> which is to say we shouldn't use the wave model because it makes it sound like women weren't active right in between. Like the only time women get active is for women's rights, which is completely inaccurate, right? You had battles for yeah. labor rights and civil rights and all that. So you have the civil rights movement for, um, you know, racially speaking, feeding into the feminist movement and the women's rights movement, as well as the gay rights movement and other identity related movements and sort of using those less and those battles to keep the fight going. Um, So interestingly, though, um, when it comes to, I'm I'm taking a bit of a digression, but I want to take it. So when it comes to, um, like when it comes to sexual rights in that way, and we look at the history of Roe, right? Similarly to the civil rights uh, cases, it's a series of legal challenges, right? That in some ways get us to, row. And it's a series of legal challenges that get us to, say, Brown versus Board of Education in this case. Um, And those cases, the Griswold um, v. Connecticut, Eisenstadt v. Baird, which are both birth control cases. Griswold is for married people. Eisenstadt is for single people. So some people refer to Eisenstadt as effectively legalizing premarital sex, um, which is not per se what it did, kind of, um, because it allowed people to protect themselves from the repercussions of premarital sex in many ways and establish that single people have a right to privacy, which does apply to how they have sex and when they have sex and with whom they have sex. Um, so you end up with these cases, Griswold, Eisenstadt, Loving um, is another one. A big thing that people got into was when Thomas's concurrence mentions three specific cases that he believes should fall because of substantive due process, which were Griswold, um, Obergefell, which is the gay marriage case, and then Lawrence, which is the uh, legalized sodomy case. We Lots of people say legalized gay sex, but technically legalized sodomy. Um, when he mentions those cases, he didn't mention loving. And lots of people are like, oh, is it because you are in an interracial marriage yourself? So it doesn't, no, it's, I, I don't think so. I think it's because loving is decided based on due process and equal protection 
lines of theory, as opposed to these other cases, which are just due process and more specifically substantive due process. And more specifically than that, the right to privacy. So <laughs> that is what is going to disappear um, if Thomas has his way. So um, I lost the thread of the original question, but I That's really cool. We'll go back to, um, <laughs> before we talk about how it was legalized, um, I, I think comes in roughly the same time as it does over here. Just tell us what's the association with communism that you've put in your notes about the 30s? And 40s? Oh yeah. Well, so, um, so the communist state, for lack of a better way of putting it, legalized, I want to say abortion on demand in 1920. Please don't get mad at me, internet. If that's wrong. <laughs> um, but I think it's 1920. And, um, although Stalin takes it back in like the mid thirties, but it became like, Oh, look, it's all, you know, the commies are all pro-abortion because, or because they want to destroy who knows, blah, blah, blah. So as folks are getting more and more into their anti-communism red scare feels particularly here and with y'all that, that linkage uh, between sort of abortion and communism as basically the only place where it is, fully legal being this Soviet Union or proto-Soviet Union. Um, Russia, really. (laughs) But that became like a a sort of association that was used to further stigmatize seeking an abortion, that was used to like tie it into one's political beliefs as well, used to uh, persecute and prosecute people um based on this sort of purported tie between them even though and yes of course that's a venn diagram with some overlap you know there are socialists and communists who were definitely pro-abortion but they're also you know not so it was just something that was exploited in that sort of interstitial period to really drive um abortion and the legality of saying sort of as deep underground as possible and then what you see oh going back to the previous question is movements beginning to sort of well, continuing to educate, ad, 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 educate, advocate. It is um, a word. It is now. <laughs> it is. It's just not the one I wanted. <laughs> but you do see folks continuing to sort of advocate, right, or beginning to advocate more as we get into like the 50s and 60s. And this begins to, you know, really reach ahead. Um, I think for y'all, you you were first. It was 67, right? Um, and for us, it was 73. But Roe was way more liberal for lack of a way better way of putting it and what you could do and what rights folks did have and what could be restricted by the states than um the law that you guys had in place why was Roe brought what was the reasoning for somebody actually taking this to court and, and getting this ruling i mean the the easy the easy answer is because she wanted to have an abortion um the, the person behind roe um is norma i think it's McCorvey, but i'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly um but she you know wanted to have an abortion had, i believe she had other kids uh, it is McCorvey, yay um and she went on to have other kids and she actually went on to become an anti-abortion activist subsequently and that, yeah, there, but because Roe was being decided, I believe she had to have the child in question because it wasn't, you know, decided yet. So I could have just gotten all of that wrong. <laughs> and you have so much in your head. It's- <laughs> we will see. Um, oh, she, uh, okay. She became an evangelical Protestant and eventually converted to Roman Catholicism. So, um, but then... She subsequently said, apparently, in what she called it, I guess I just looked this up because I'm a librarian and I'm fast. Um, she apparently said, in what she called her deathbed confession, that she never really supported the anti-abortion movement and had been paid for her support of the anti-abortion movement. So the the figure behind Roe is a particularly controversial, in some ways, figure when it comes to what did she believe, what did she want what was she what was her reaction to this in reality I don't think we can ever really know um but yes Roe was regarding her third pregnancy so she had already had kids at that point and I'm I'm like people love to forget that that like uh, honestly abortion is very frequently used by married people who don't want to have more kids um the idea of promiscuity was something that was deliberately 
you know, put about. In the not early. even like don't want, can't, can't feed them, can't house them, can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's Which invariably happens if you're working class, right? Exactly. Because if you're rich, you can afford to have another kid because you've got the disposable income. So really, it's and become you can afford something. to have an abortion. Well, there's that as well. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a double double whammy, isn't it? But mm-hmm. if you're working class and you're living on the breadline and you've got three kids already and a fourth is in the offing, then big questions about how the hell you're going to feed those kids. I want to talk about backlash, if we can, to Roe, because just as there's been a backlash now, there was an equivalent backlash from the more right-wing camp when Mm. Roe came in. What form did that take? Well, it's interesting, right? Because um, in yet another case of really effective revisionist history, I guess, (laughs) um, folks these days would have you believe that that backlash was immediate. That it was like Roe was decided and everybody just lost their shit. And it was like, no, we can't have this. Like we've all, you know, coalesced around this issue. And that is completely untrue. Um, The Southern Baptist Convention wrote in support, in support of Roe. Um, when it was being decided. So, and like these, never, right? But so folks were much more fine with it than what it would appear now at the time. However, what was also happening at the same time, at least in the United States, was um, desegregation. Since we were talking about the Civil Rights Amendment and whatnot, or Civil Rights Act. And So when desegregation is occurring, you have a situation wherein churches are maintaining segregated schools, which is a problem um, if segregation is no longer allowed and churches receive tax exemption. So the federal government, under of all people, Nixon, said that if they if these racially segregated schools were going to like stay racially segregated, refuse to admit black folks, Bob Jones University was a big one when they were asked about it. They just said, we don't admit African-Americans, period. Sorry. Um, So the federal government, when they decided to sort of do that, um, that's when the evangelical mobilization started because their tax exempt status was under threat uh, because the IRS was not going to give tax exempt status to any schools that were racially segregated still in contravening uh, sort of federal law. And so this sort of idea of government interference in the administration of churches and whatnot um, sort of caught fire amongst leaders, but they shopped around for a, an issue for a minute. Like they didn't even start with Roe. They started with, um, well, started with, but they were looking at obviously the tax thing. They were looking at, um, I've got, what else? There were like several other things and I'm trying to remember what they are. And now I'm just going to cheat and look it up. (laughs) But so they sort of shop around for different issues for a minute. And eventually they settle on this idea of abortion as the one, right? Like this is the one that we can sort of coalesce evangelical conservatives, right? Because it should be known that not all evangelical Christians are actually conservative, but that's who we're talking about. Um, Oh, here it is. Uh, Porn was a big one because the 70s was filled with porn cases before the Supreme Court, prayer in schools, um, the ERA, which don't we wish we'd pass that now? (laughs) The Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution (laughs) and, you know, sort of stuff like that. But then so abortion kind of um, and the guy who's sort of doing all of this work is the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation. Um, which is a big conservative organization now that is also behind the fetal personhood movement in the United States, which sort of dovetails with all of this legally. I wish y'all could see the reaction that just happened when I said the fetal personhood movement. (laughs) But yeah, so they're trying to do all this stuff. And eventually 
they settle on this idea of abortion as like, okay, this is one we can get behind. This is one we can mobilize people behind. Um, But that almost really was until the late seventies, like early eighties, really um, that that became to be the thing. At that point, however, there's a lot of backlash to take advantage of, right? Because there's backlash against a lot of things happening. Obviously, the segregation thing is backlash against the civil rights movement. The um, the failure to pass the ERA is the result of, yes, missteps, but also backlash against the women's rights movement. Um, you also have, like, the gay rights movement that had been happening. And then as we go into the 80s more, you end up with backlash there, particularly in regards to HIV AIDS, as that is sort of discovered and codified. And you have, like, the same person who has Jesse Helms, who ban, who institutes the amendment to ban sort of provision of abortion with federal funds outside of the country, not to be confused with the Hyde Act, um, is also the same one who was talking about how we should put like gay men who have, who are HIV positive in camps, you know, like this is, this is the same people. And this is like under Reagan in the eighties by that point. You also have, when it comes to the ERA, you had Phyllis Schlafly, um, and you have Beverly LaHaye, whose husband wrote the Left Behind series. If people have read those about the, you know, the rapturing of people, it's like a Christian post-apocalyptic. I am rapture. so angry that my cat has run away. Like <laughs> literally, Bertie has just flipped. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. literally drained his chin already yeah like you really need more gin for this conversation and just the world in general I think right now I think everybody needs like a backup bottle of gin I have two if I could pass it through the internet I would give it to you Um, (laughs) but yeah so you end up with oh and so I was saying Beverly LaHaye and the Concerned Women for America, so they mobilize about the ERA, and then you already have the ability to sort of take advantage of, like, these pre-existing groups and drive them towards this singular issue, which they did pretty successfully. There was a takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm pretty sure Jerry Falwell was involved in that, so that changed that policy real quick, you know, Um, and so you end up in a situation where things look different. (laughs) <laughs> in the mid 70s it didn't it, it maybe did not seem like it was gonna go this way um but it did and then now what we have going way way back to the question is, of whether or not we can blame this on the dawn um yes and no right yes in the sense that the supreme court shenanigans helped pave the way for this to actually occur but no in the sense that this was a sort of concerted and very much you know uh, thought out planned effort for multiple decades uh, to get to this eventual result as a way of mobilizing a base for a variety of issues not just a Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Portion. 
But there is Casey, right? There Which is upholds Roe. So yeah. why why can you overturn one and not in the process? Uh, apologies, this is ignorance showing here, Ooh. but you've got Casey, 1992, that upholds Roe. Is the mm. idea that you go for Roe because Casey is built upon Roe? Or can Casey now be used as a counter argument to what the Supreme Court's been been doing? No, um, that your first statement was correct. Um, so basically, because Roe falls, Casey falls. Um, because Casey upheld Roe um, to a certain extent, right? It did change the viability requirement, which also happened for y'all at about the same time based on medical technology. I think it was O'Connor who was talking about that. Um, but it does, and it sort of says that the limits at the state of Pennsylvania, who's, uh, was the state in question for that, um, the limits that they put were too extensive in many ways on, um, and too burdensome for someone seeking an abortion in many ways. So on the one hand, they did uphold Roe, but they did, they, it was, it was a little gutted, like a little bit from, um, from previous times. And then now it is what it is. And that's part of the reason that when it comes down to these other cases, like once Griswold falls, like they don't even have to overturn Lawrence v. Texas or Obergefell, really, because once Griswold falls and there is no right to privacy, sure, it, you know, you can do that for, you know, the math and for making it look right or whatever. But without a right to privacy, there is no underlying rationale for the decisions in Lawrence or Obergefell that this court is going to feel any need to respect. So, so we need to that's the history that's how women couldn't then could then now freaking can't have agency over their own bodies again in the united states what are the immediate implications and ramifications of the dobbs decision well so we have a so some women still can right you you can still access abortion in the united states it just depends on geographically speaking where you are Um, So we have states that have worked even harder to protect it even more. We have states where abortion is just still legal sort of in the same way it was. We have states that had trigger laws that immediately went into effect that banned all abortions the second row fell. Um, I live in a state, Louisiana had such a trigger law, but because um, the way the law is worded, a judge actually passed down an injunction against the immediate enforcement of Louisiana's trigger law because it's too vague. Um, So basically you have this sort of like checkerboard pattern of depending on what state you are, depending on like what's going on, maybe or maybe not, you can access an abortion in a clinic. Now, the big thing that is different from the pre-row days, right, when if you see everybody with the coat hangers, it's like we're, we're not living in the land of coat hangers anymore because there's pills, yeah. right? <laughs> like, so then it becomes like your ac- like access to pills, right? Like, can you access the abortion pill? And some states are trying to make that incredibly difficult to do. Um, activists in return are trying to set up things wherein they might have like basically a, a mobile, you know, right outside state lines, where as soon as you cross state lines, you can go right there, get a prescription called in, um, whatnot. But it's still going back to the poverty question. It's still something that's really going to most impact people who do not have access to funds, who are working class, who, um, you know, are going to be going to have to deal with this in a practical way where shelling out a couple hundred extra dollars or taking a day off work might not be the same. And it's also going to impact um, people of color more, especially black women, because they have a maternal mortality rate that's nine times higher than white women in the United States, I believe. In the free world, in a first world country, um, they... The thing that terrifies me, right, it is bad enough that you're saying, no, you can't do that in your home state anymore. But there's a precedence here in terms of control in the it's not going to be necessarily easy, as easy if you can take a day off work and you can find $200 to drive across state lines Mm -hmm. because some states are attempting to police that as well and stop you from accessing it somewhere else. So what kind of precedent is that saying? 
Well, so there's an interesting question, right? Um, and Kavanaugh, of all people, is the one that folks are hanging their hat on as um, because he had said that he does not believe that the right to travel can be infringed, right, in that way. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean all that it could mean because it doesn't actually protect people from potentially getting sued or charged or whatever when they reach their home state for something they did in another state. Um, So (laughs) even if they're not being stopped at the border per se, there's still a lot of ways that that can be infringed. The issue in part is that um, there's a law called the Mann Act, um, which used to be called the White Slave Trafficking Act because it's all about racism in the United States. (laughs) So, but the Mann Act prevented the... uh, transporting a woman or girl across state lines for immoral purposes. Um, That's it, basically. It was like footloose or something. Um, So that law had a lot of issues. There's actually a lot of blackmail cases that result that arose out of that. But um, eventually it went to the Supreme Court in Caminetti v. United States. It's upheld. Um, And though the Mann Act has changed forms, right, it's no longer gender specific. Instead of saying immoral, it's illegal, a couple other little tweaks like that, you know, that are meaningful, but still, that is still a law that is on the books. (laughs) Right. So Elliot Spitzer, um, when he was governor of New York and then went to Washington, D.C. to see a sex worker and then came back, they were talking about charging him under the Man Act. Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's horrible yeah. friend, Man Act <laughs> charges potentially right there. Um, so then the question of, well, if it's illegal, what does that mean? And on the positive side, you have things like, for instance, gambling, right, is clearly very much legal in Nevada, but not necessarily legal in other places. And you can go to Nevada and gamble and come back home, and you're not going to get charged with breaking gambling rules, right? But you do also have this thing where Congress has articulated um, the right to police the travel of folks across state lines, which falls under congressional powers because Congress has the right to regulate interstate commerce, Um, and that it has been used to police sex and sexuality um, as part of a sex panic or moral scare, which is what was going on there. And like some of the most famous people charged under the Mann Act back in the day were Black men who were with white women, most prominently Jack Johnson, the boxer. Are we going to see hard borders at state lines? What'd you say? Are we going to see hard borders at state lines? I I personally do not think so. There is concern, for sure, yeah. that people will be stopped at the borders um, of their states to go places. But um, I, I feel like the enforcement there would be really tricky. And it's honestly would be easier for states to get away with making it incredibly punitive and charging you when you get back or like allowing people to sue when you get back or whatnot than trying to stop you at the border per se. But also, I mean, at this point, what isn't on the table, it seems like, for what folks are willing to do? Because like we keep talking about the right to privacy, but that's birth control. There is a possibility we are talking about where birth control becomes illegal in multiple states in the United States soon. Like there are already places that are worried about putting in IUDs because it might count too close to reproductive technology because it prevents an embryo from implanting, which technically would be post-conception. Like that's, that's the, that's Sorry. the pool we're swimming in. IEDs, um, you say IEDs certainly to somebody like me, and I think improvised explosive device. So, <laughs> intrauterine device, intrauterine. U D Zach, U. Yeah, U D. Um, <laughs> fun fact there, since this is a podcast that's shamefully devoid of fun facts. Sorry, everybody, but um, the person who invented the IED is the same guy who uh, discovered the G spot, Ernst Grafenberg. I mean, <laughs> someone who I'm pretty sure. Has never fucking, if he does know where it is, I don't think he cares enough to action it or do anything. Uh, Clarence Thomas and his pals, where where else could they go now? Because the worry is that this could just be the beginning. Well, um, there's like, so there's a lot of things that have sort of happened at once. And we've talked about the, the, the 
same sex and other sexually related rights. So I would say any sexually related right that one conceives of oneself as having might potentially be on the table. Not all of them. Um, For instance, like sexual harassment is through uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Educational Amendments Act of 1972. Um, So in both of those cases, right, that's where how you get sex discrimination cases and sexual harassment cases. Um, You know, the zoning impacts like sex law. There's a lot of stuff. But when it comes to partner choice, when it comes to, I mean, the, there's currently, right now, getting real granular, a circuit split um, because the United States is divided into multiple circuits that feed into the Supreme Court for folks who don't know. So your case goes before your district and then goes up the chain, eventually gets to a circuit court, and then from there it may or may not be taken by the Supreme Court. Um, so when there's a circuit split, it means the court is more likely to take a case, although they have never taken this case before, um, which is in the Fifth Circuit, they recently, recently, in like 2007 or something, ruled that uh, sex toys are legal (laughs) to possess. Um, There was a woman who was arrested, I I shit you not, with uh, possession with intent to distribute. Because she had like... (laughs) Um, It's a sex toy, people. Can we please get a grip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Fifth Circuit is... um, so in the Fifth Circuit, which is Louisiana, Texas, and I would say Arkansas, um, they were like, okay, fine, fine, fine. It's it's like fine, you know, pursuant to the understanding in Lawrence, the gay sex case, because this right to privacy and the right to sort of engage in, you know, consensual sex in one's own bedroom. But in the Eleventh Circuit, they've continuously held that that's not how you should interpret Lawrence. So sex toys can still be illegal. Just so um. <laughs> well, like it's careful what you wish for because Thomas is one of the three that he pulled up as being like, oh, we should look at these too because I haven't mm-hmm. fucked with America enough. Uh, he's looking at half of a law of which the other half was the the ruling that it's okay for a black man to marry a, a white woman. And what has he done? Yeah, and I really, I just don't think he's worried about it for a, a variety of reasons. Number one, he's 74. Yeah. <laughs> like by the time that law potentially made it to the Supreme Court, like he he might be dead um, because like it takes a while for a suit to get up there Two, um, he lives in Virginia. He resides in Virginia and loving V Virginia was the case. So you'd think that this would be an issue because they're the one who has a law in the books, but he works in Washington, DC. So getting a property in Washington, DC, I don't think would be very difficult for him to accomplish. And the odds of them doing that, if they do it to a state by state thing, the odds of DC as a municipality doing that either federally or individually are pretty low, given the population of Washington, DC is majority black and then some. (laughs) Um, He can say this shit knowing it will never affect him. Yeah. And like I said earlier, Loving was decided based on due process and equal protection, or it could be decided based on either. So both are listed. And so when you look at the actual decision for Loving, it doesn't cite Griswold, but it does cite Skinner v. Oklahoma, which is a sterilization case, which, by the way, also still legal in the United States. (laughs) That didn't it, uh, limited, but did not overturn Buck v. Bell, which is the case in which, excuse the ableist language, it's about to come out, but it's a quote, the case in which one of the nation's most famous jurisprudence, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said three generations of idiots are enough. Oh, my God. <laughs> Upholding the right of the state to sterilize people in institutions. And then Skinner, um, basically, Skinner v. Oklahoma is like, no, you can't do that because the law in question, like, only sterilized certain felons but not all felons like if you embezzled you didn't have to get sterilized hmm I wonder why embezzlement might have been the one that was accepted anyway so Skinner was decided on equal protection grounds and so loving cites Skinner um, and whatnot so he can make a reasonable legal argument that when he's talking about these substantive due process cases he's really not talking about loving because the factors that went into deciding loving are not the same 
they are related and subsequent cases rely on loving like Obergefell, the gay marriage one, but loving does not actually have the same rationale as these other cases. So technically it is not as in danger as those other ones are. Now, could it be because folks are racist? Certainly during Katanji Brown Jackson's hearings, I believe not one, but two senators, at least one senator, which was Mike Braun from Indiana, um, said that interracial marriage should basically be left to the states. But then he said that he misspoke. Um, yeah, given- after the a whole world of shit came down on his head, he said he right. misspoke, right? Right. You know, so I, I wouldn't say that that's by any stretch of the imagine off the table. I would just say it's not on the table in the same way, in the same immediate way that the three that he specifically mentioned are. Can I ask another question from a position of idiocy here? Um, no. Why <clears throat> hasn't America got it shit together and taken some of these rulings that are fundamental, really fucking basic human rights, you know? Who you fall in love with is not a matter for the state to decide. That is not a radical thought in 2022. Why hasn't anyone gone, you know what? We're meant to be a, a nation founded on inalienable rights. We need to actually enshrine some of those in the bloody constitution. Why hasn't that happened? Why is there this reliance on judicial precedent and previous rulings, which as we've seen can be overturned based on political agenda? I don't think that's a foolish question at all, but the answer essentially is it's, it's incredibly difficult to amend the Constitution. It is rough. And um, speaking of how people prepped for this battle, it requires it requires the cooperation of state legislatures, many of which Republicans control. So getting an amendment passed with a number of state legislators controlled by the parties that they are controlled by now seems like a pretty tough road to hoe. It also required folks to sort of have the courage of their convictions and people were very scared, I would say, for a long time of being like openly and vigorously um, sort of pro-choice or pro-bodily autonomy because then, you know, folks would be like, but you want to kill babies, you know, or whatever. Votes, right? Mm-hmm. It is. It's going to cost you votes if you mm-hmm. whatever they were concerned that it would cost like you to and say this is where I plant my flag. It will lose you votes. So it's best to just ride the middle of the road. Yeah. Yeah, that was the concern. I don't think that that was always necessarily true, right? Um, But that was the concern, and that's certainly how people operated. So (laughs) we ended up in the same place regardless. But yeah, so that's that's the essential reason. Um, The ERA is a great example of this. The first time the ERA was proposed was after women got the vote (laughs) in the early 20th century by Alice Paul, who is problematic in some ways in her own respect, but she was committed to the ERA. And um, and I believe the text is almost the exact same, if not the exact same, as proposed in 1920. <laughs> um, but it was proposed again um, in the 70s and defeated in 1983. Well, defeated, it just lapsed in 1983 because they didn't get enough states to ratify. Um, and then people were talking about bringing it back actually last year, I want to say, or the year before people were talking about bringing it back in the sense of like, well, just because they didn't ratify doesn't mean we can't still just get three states to ratify now, you know? And I believe a federal judge was like, yeah, no, you're going to have to repropose that amendment because Congress had did some sort of, had imposed a limitation on how long states had to ratify that particular amendment and it had passed. So I, that should be right or mostly right, everyone on the internet, sorry. Um, so you end up in a situation where you would try to pass the area again. Like there's some argument for that. There's um, pass a federal law protecting abortion. There's an argument for that. Um, I saw something on the internet the other day and I'm not sure, I'll freely admit, I'm, I haven't looked into it more, but it sounded awfully right to me, which was, there shouldn't be any reason that the federal government couldn't put clinics on every military base and make them free. Because a military base isn't controlled by the state, it's controlled by the federal government. So there's a lot of potential solutions that people could access. But when it comes to like actually changing the constitution, I think that that is the reason that it hasn't happened yet is um, drive, but also control of state legislatures. So we'll see. 
Um, but I, the only amendment I've heard on the table was the ERA. Um, other than that, I've heard a lot about federal laws, but not amending the constitution per se, just because it's so incredibly difficult. I mean, the same would have to happen for term limits for the Supreme Court justices. You'd still have to amend the constitution, I believe. Although I will say, because it does need to be said that justices, um, that this entire, this entire farce, right, is more farcical because the justices who oppose the right to privacy and with it, Roe, et cetera, um, are using the argument that it is not found in the constitution, that it's based on a quote unquote penumbra of rights, including the ninth amendment. And that's not a good rationale, legally speaking. However, the right of Supreme, the Supreme Court to review cases, it's also not in the constitution. They gave themselves that right and with Marbury versus Madison in the 18th century. So, I mean, textualism, sure, we care when originalism, we also care when, you know, it works for us and what we already wanted to do anyway. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I have nothing more profound than that. This this week has genuinely broken me. Um, it's a good job okay. I didn't have the bottle of gin beside me because I'd be on the floor right now. Um, it might be like a really fun like moment for the podcast, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it might, might help our viewer, viewer ratings. Rooks, thank you so much for sitting no down problem. with us and talking through all of this. It kind of feels odd to to publicize the black joke but people if you were blown away and i don't know how you couldn't be blown away by this episode go back to our episode on the black joke um go buy the book because it's an incredible book um but also rooks you are on twitter um it's it what's your twitter handle apologies I oh it is it is my full name what it is at alicia rooks a-l-y-s-h-a-r-o-o-k-s and also i thought of a terrible postscript so i kind of want to add it add it which is just that um there was another case that was decided uh this past session that was kennedy v bremerton um which was a case about the separation of church and state namely whether or not a football coach could lead prayer uh that involved his students at the 50 yard line after a game and the supreme court decided yes um and when they did that they uh sort of eviscerated uh the lemon test which has been like the 60 year uh test that's been used to check out whether or not something is violating the establishment clause of the first amendment, which is establishing religion. And so um, in the context (laughs) of the other things that have happened, the wall between church and state getting kind of fallen down over um, quite a bit is probably not a great sign for where um, all of these streams are trying to converge. No, it just, it, judicial overreach that's all i'm gonna say because i've sworn enough in this episode <laughs> activist judges that's 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 the term they use to browbeat everyone for years and here we are <laughs> with judges if, if people don't realize the whole point of the judiciary is that they're not meant to be politically motivated there are literally like the premise behind them is that they rule according to the law not according to their political bloody opinions that's why we have politicians if you wanted to be judged, you could go all the way back to when Parliament was a court. That's and that's I forget the date where that ceased to be yeah. the case. But Parliament has not been a judicial court for hundreds of years. And, and this is why you have a, a difference in the judiciary to the politicians, that politicians are meant to be political and the judiciary are meant to be, the clues in the bloody name, judicial. Um, and there's meant to be a very deliberate separation to stop exactly these kinds of infringements. Rooks, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you to all of our guests over what has been an epic, ranty, depressing, We hope you enjoyed Liberal Ranty Week on History Hack. We are intensely <laughs> proud of it. We're not even sorry. They're not. I want a badge. Isn't that what yeah, y'all call it? I'm going to get a badge. badge liberal. Liberal. I participated I participated in liberal. In liberal. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would wear that with pride. Yeah. People, thank you for listening. This matters in a way that goes above and beyond our normal episodes. 
please do the basic things. And this isn't like a, oh, please spread the word. This is like a, this matters and people need to understand this. So please use these resources, if you want to call them that, of these episodes to educate people in this discussion. You've heard about books and cases and all the rest of it that are relevant. Please go and look them up. Use this for good. That's why we put it together, not to generate clicks. We did this because this matters and people need to understand the fight that's gone on and just how dangerous these discussions have been. Thanks all for listening. Take care. We'll be back again soon. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.